welcome. I am your host, Nicole Nyberg. I am a neonatal nurse practitioner and also a proud preemie mama to my son, William, who just happens to be a former 23-weeker. So if you are a current or former NICU parent, you have come to the right place. I have been exactly where you are, and I know what you're going through. We will be discussing all things related to the neonatal intensive care unit for preterm and term infants, as well as some of the emotions and struggles parents endure along the way in the NICU and beyond. So tune in and get ready to become educated and empowered. This is the Empowering NICU Parents Podcast. While I make every effort to broadcast correct and up-to-date information, medicine is constantly evolving and advancing, and I continue to learn new things each day. Every NICU baby and their journey is different, and every institution varies in their practices as well. So please, always consult your obstetrician and your infant's physician for any medical issues or concerns. I am presenting from my personal experience and knowledge. My opinions do not represent that of my employers. Hi, everyone. For today's podcast topic, I have to admit that I have likely been putting off addressing this particular topic. A mother had reached out and asked that I discuss it, so here we go. Yes, it is definitely necessary to cover, but it is one of those topics that still in 2023 does not have a clear, consistent way to diagnose or manage. Today, I will be discussing gastroesophageal reflux and gastroesophageal reflux disease. It is a very common occurrence amongst all babies, but especially NICU infants. Reflux is a contentious topic in the neonatology world, likely due to the fact that there is a lack of specific guidance in the most optimal way to manage it. For me personally and professionally, it is difficult to have one solid opinion about the diagnosis and management of GER and GERD. As a former NICU nurse, I saw so many infants experience reflux. As a NICU parent, my son William struggled with reflux once we brought him home, and yes, at that time, it was managed with medication. And finally, now, as a neonatal nurse practitioner, I still see infants struggle with reflux, but I'm also more knowledgeable about what the evidence does and does not show regarding reflux, and I truly understand its complexity. So I can appreciate how nurses advocate for their patients. I completely acknowledge the internal battle parents endure as they helplessly watch their baby grapple with reflux and its associated symptoms. And I also embrace what the research has shown and why providers do not hastily start infants on reflux medications. So today, I'm going to break down gastroesophageal reflux, or GER, and gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, including an explanation for how they are different. We will then discuss what some of the common symptoms are, how it is typically diagnosed, and we'll conclude with management and the recommended non-pharmacological and pharmacological treatment. So sit back and get ready to be empowered as we discuss gastroesophageal reflux. This episode of our podcast is sponsored by Dr. Brown's Medical. 
Dr. Brown's Medical strives to deliver valuable infant feeding products and programs to support professionals in providing positive feeding experiences for the infants in their care. Traditional feeding products and practices in the NICU are inconsistent and can result in poor feeding outcomes. All babies deserve positive feeding experiences for life. 100% of the top children's hospitals in the United States utilize Dr. Brown's effective feeding solutions. Dr. Brown's unique zero-resistance bottle systems, nipples with reliable flow rates, and the infant-driven feeding program are evidence-based standard of care practices that improve infant feeding outcomes. The Dr. Brown's medical team is available to provide support for you and your team to help achieve best practice results. Dr. Brown's Medical provides four free webinars every year on various infant feeding topics and offers continuing education hours for nurses, occupational therapists, and speech-language pathologists. Learn more at www.drbrownsmedical.com or find the link in the show notes. Do not miss capturing a single one of your baby's first holidays with our set of first holiday cards. Each set of 5x5 cards includes 12 unique and colorful holiday images for every major and minor holiday. Take a moment and capture the perfect photo opportunity each holiday during your baby's first year. You may not believe me now, but your baby's first year will fly by. So capture an amazing keepsake that you will forever treasure with these holiday cards. Order your set of downloadable holiday cards right now at empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash shop. That's empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash S-H-O-P. Or find the link in our show notes. Now back to the episode. To start, let's talk about the definition of gastroesophageal reflux and gastroesophageal reflux disease. Most of you likely know what reflux is, and perhaps you experience it yourself every once in a while. But what does it truly mean? Well, gastroesophageal reflux is defined as the retrograde passage of gastric contents into the esophagus and possibly the oral cavity with or without regurgitation and or vomiting. Gastroesophageal reflux disease is differentiated because it involves troublesome symptoms or complications that persist and affect daily functioning due to the events associated with gastroesophageal reflux. Gastroesophageal reflux is a common occurrence in all infants who typically experience an average of 30 episodes of gastric fluids refluxing into the esophagus per day. Regurgitation occurs in 40 to 60% of healthy 0 to 4 month old infants. The frequent occurrence of reflux is related to the infant's frequent feeding cycles as well as the large volumes of milk ingested at each feeding time. Additionally, it occurs due to the infant's necessary supine position or as infants are lying on their back following feedings, which places the gastroesophageal junction in a liquid environment. 
Now, as you likely know, the supine position is the position that is most protective against sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS. So despite the increased risk of reflux in the supine position, it still remains a recommended position for infants. The most important mechanism thought to contribute to gastroesophageal reflux is the transient relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter, or LES. The sphincter is made up of intrinsic smooth muscle. The lower esophageal sphincter is an autonomous contractile apparatus that becomes active or relaxes based on different activities. The LES relaxes during swallowing, pharyngeal stimulation, with distension in the esophagus, abdominal straining, and gastroesophageal reflux. In general, reflexes kick in when there is a retrograde movement of contents which are abruptly halted with contraction of the upper esophageal sphincter, or UES. This barrier function matures with development and age. Transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxation is defined as an abrupt decrease in the lower esophageal sphincter pressure at or below intragastric pressure unrelated to swallowing. It is the most common mechanism of gastroesophageal reflux in infants. When this occurs, it allows regurgitation of stomach contents into the esophagus. But it is a normal developmental phenomenon that will resolve with age and maturation. I promise. Studies, though, have shown that preterm infants diagnosed with gastroesophageal reflux disease have a longer hospital stay and higher hospital costs when compared to infants not affected by GERD. It has been estimated that the diagnosis of gastroesophageal reflux disease in a NICU infant increased the hospital cost by an average of $70,000. And unfortunately, many of these infants will continue to require additional treatment and healthcare costs post-NICU discharge as well. Now, as I said, gastroesophageal reflux is an almost universal phenomenon in preterm infants and more common when compared to healthy-term infants. Gastroesophageal reflux disease is also known to be prominent in children who have other underlying medical complications other than prematurity, including neurologic impairments and pulmonary problems, including cystic fibrosis. The pathogenesis of gastroesophageal reflux in preterm infants is thought to be multifactorial and partially due to their immature or impaired anatomic and physiologic factors. As I just stated, the most important mechanism thought to contribute to gastroesophageal reflux in preterm infants, as well as older infants and adults, is transient relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. Preterm infants have several episodes of transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxation each day that may or may not be associated with episodes of gastroesophageal reflux. But infants with gastroesophageal reflux disease are more likely to experience acid regurgitation during lower esophageal sphincter relaxation than those without GERD. Although delayed gastric emptying is more common in preterm infants, 
compared with mature newborns, it does not appear to play a contributory role in gastroesophageal reflux. Data has shown that infants with symptomatic gastroesophageal reflux do not have delayed gastric emptying compared with other asymptomatic infants. Yet, we do know that gastroesophageal reflux is more common immediately after feeding, but this is most likely due to gastric distension. Another factor that places preterm infants at an increased risk for gastroesophageal reflux is their indwelling NG or OG tube that is utilized for feedings. With the tube in the proper position, there is incomplete closure of the lower esophageal sphincter, which allows gastric contents to rise up into the esophagus. Additionally, gastroesophageal reflux may occur more frequently in infants who have respiratory disorders like bronchopulmonary dysplasia or BPD. Now, we covered BPD in detail back on episode 36, which you can listen to by heading to empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash episode 36. The contributing factor is thought to be due to the infant's increased work of breathing, which results in an increase in the intra-abdominal pressure compared to the intra-thoracic pressure. The mismatched pressure may be due to coughing, airflow obstruction, and or crying. Once this occurs, it causes the lower esophageal sphincter tone to decrease and contributes to transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxation. Additionally, these infants are often treated with caffeine, which may exacerbate gastroesophageal reflux due to an increase in secretion of gastric acid and a decrease in lower esophageal sphincter pressure. Infants with intraventricular hemorrhage, or IVH, or hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, or HIE, are also more likely to experience gastroesophageal reflux disease due to an increased risk of problematic mechanisms that may contribute to reflux. The incidence of gastroesophageal reflux disease is around 15 to 75 percent in children with neurologic impairment. One of the problematic factors in the ability to diagnose gastroesophageal reflux or gastroesophageal reflux disease is the nonspecific nature of the symptoms. One paper I reviewed classified the presenting symptoms very nicely into four different groups. The first one, gastrointestinal symptoms, which may include regurgitation, vomiting or emesis, and or abdominal distension. Number two, cardiorespiratory. Episodes characterized with bradycardia, tachycardia, apnea, periodic breathing, tachypnea or fast breathing, increased respiratory effort, and or desaturations. Number three, somatosensory or irritability, back arching, crying, and grimace. And then number four, aerodigestive, which is swallowing and feeding difficulties, sneezing, coughing, choking, and breathing disturbances. Oftentimes, infants can present with more than one category of symptoms or cues. And assuming the troublesome symptoms are due to reflux events and the absence of evidence remains controversial. According to research, it is likely that in many cases, gastroesophageal reflux is not the underlying cause of these symptoms. It is difficult to prove that reflux events are causing one or multiple symptoms. This is especially true when we attempt to define quote-unquote troublesome symptoms 
due to an infant being nonverbal. Before we dive into the diagnostic evaluation and treatment of gastroesophageal reflux and gastroesophageal reflux disease, let's break down its relationship, or lack thereof, to apnea, respiratory disease, and failure to thrive. Gastroesophageal reflux disease is often linked to apnea as a precursor for episodes of apnea, oxygen desaturations, and bradycardia episodes with assumptions that pharmacological treatments or medications may decrease the incidence or severity of these events. But researchers have closely examined the timing of reflux episodes in relation to apneic events and found that they are rarely temporally related and that gastroesophageal reflux does not prolong or worsen apnea. The lack of a causal relationship was disputed in studies that utilized cardiorespiratory monitoring, including respiratory inductance, plethysmography, heart rate monitoring, oxygen saturation, and esophageal pH testing to detect acidic gastroesophageal reflux. The article in UpToDate touched on three different studies that illustrated the lack of association between apnea and reflux. They also stated that some studies suggest the opposite, that apnea may actually precipitate gastroesophageal reflux. Additionally, there's no evidence that pharmacologic treatment of gastroesophageal reflux with medications that reduce gastric acidity and promote gastrointestinal motility decrease the risk of recurrent apnea or bradycardia in preterm infants. Although infants with gastroesophageal reflux and gastroesophageal reflux disease may experience frequent regurgitation, there's no evidence that this leads to suboptimal growth nutritional difficulties, or failure to thrive. However, it has been shown in studies that infants with gastroesophageal reflux took longer to achieve full oral feedings. In regards to bronchopulmonary dysplasia, or BPD, there is no evidence that GER contributes to BPD, although it is suggested, as I mentioned previously, that infants with BPD may be more susceptible to gastroesophageal reflux But these infants do not have an increased incidence of symptomatic gastroesophageal reflux. To help guide decision-making for the diagnosis and management of gastroesophageal reflux with non-pharmacological and pharmacological treatments, the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition and the European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition published guidelines in 2018 on the approach to children presenting with gastroesophageal reflux and gastroesophageal reflux disease. Unfortunately, the guidelines are not entirely clear about their applicability to infants in the NICU, especially premature infants. The guidelines included some great tables and algorithms throughout the article that I found incredibly helpful since I am a visual person. If you'd like, go and grab your free resource with the tables and algorithms so you can follow along at empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash G-E-R or find the link in our show notes. Due to infants presenting with a variety and wide range of nonspecific symptoms that may be interpreted as gastroesophageal reflux disease, the reliability is not always clear 
which leads to both over and under diagnosis and treatment. Unfortunately, there currently is not a Cribside test available that is highly sensitive or specific to diagnose gastroesophageal reflux disease. Several methods have been used in the past to diagnose gastroesophageal reflux disease in the preterm population, including contrast fluoroscopy, pH monitoring, and multi-channel intraesophageal impedance, or MII, monitoring. So, we will break down each of these now. With contrast fluoroscopy, it can be used to show episodes of reflux, but it does not help with proper management due to its inability to differentiate between clinically significant gastroesophageal reflux from insignificant gastroesophageal reflux. pH monitoring with an esophageal probe has been the most widely used diagnostic test for gastroesophageal reflux in infants. This is what we commonly used when I was a NICU nurse back in the early 2000s to diagnose gastroesophageal reflux. Unfortunately, it has been shown that the diagnostic value is limited due to the need for proper placement of the probe, which is difficult because there is a wide spectrum of sizes of preterm infants. Additionally, the gastric pH in premature infants is greater than 4 approximately 90% of the time, and an abnormal esophageal pH does not correlate well with symptom severity. Therefore, measurement of esophageal pH is not a reliable method to diagnose gastroesophageal reflux in preterm infants. Currently, the most accurate method for detecting gastroesophageal reflux is the multi-channel intraesophageal impedance monitoring, which is frequently combined with simultaneous pH measurement. It can be used to track the movement of fluids, solids, and air in the esophagus by measuring changes in electrical impedance. The MII can discern whether a fluid bolus is traveling antegrade or with swallowing or retrograde, which is reflux, in the esophagus, as well as the height of the retrograde bolus. Combined with a pH sensor, it is thought to be a reliable technique to determine acidity and for diagnosing gastroesophageal reflux in preterm infants. Despite these available diagnostic tools, the responsibility to decide whether to treat gastroesophageal reflux disease empirically or wait or to consider additional tests for troublesome symptoms ultimately rests with the provider or physician. A thorough physical exam of the infant combined with a focused history should be completed. The initial management needs to always consider optimal nutrition, feeding methods, and continuation of breastfeeding. The initial management of gastroesophageal reflux is conservative and typically consists of dietary changes. There are also feeding modifications that can be recommended if there is a definitive relationship between symptoms and gastroesophageal reflux. For breastfed infants, a modification in the maternal diet free from all dairy, including casein, whey, and eggs, should be followed for two to four weeks to help rule out a protein allergy that may mimic gastroesophageal reflux disease. Oh, God bless these poor mamas. What on earth will they eat after removing all of that? Now, for formula-fed infants, the same practice applies in trying to rule out a cow's milk protein sensitivity. Consider trying a two- to four-week trial of an extensively hydrolyzed protein formula. 
The practice guidelines from 2018 recommend a trial at a minimum of two weeks to adequately assess symptom improvement. It may be beneficial to consider a trial of decreased volume feedings with or without an increase in the frequency. The guidelines do suggest to modify feeding volumes and frequency according to age and weight, ensuring not to overfeed infants with gastroesophageal reflux disease. But this should always be done in collaboration with a dietitian and or provider to closely monitor the infant's overall growth. Another option to consider is thickened feedings. Thickened feedings are thought to decrease the incidence of gastroesophageal reflux, but it does not decrease the acidity of the reflux. Per the recommendations by the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, the use of thickeners may slightly improve the occurrence of avert regurgitation or vomiting, but it is uncertain if thickening feedings improves other signs and symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux and if their use leads to side effects in infants. For term infants with gastroesophageal reflux or gastroesophageal reflux disease, it is recommended to use one tablespoon of dry rice cereal per one ounce of formula. The United States Food and Drug Administration and the American Academy of Pediatrics, or AAP, issued a warning about the use of thickened feedings and its association with necrotizing enterocolitis in premature infants. Continuous or transpyloric feedings may reduce the incidence of apnea or bradycardia in preterm infants with gastroesophageal reflux. Despite this, there is no evidence in research to support the use of continuous or transpyloric feedings to help reduce gastroesophageal reflux. A common initial approach to management of reflux is to raise the infant's head of the bed, but this has been shown to be ineffective in reducing acid reflux in older infants. Additionally, car seat placement was found to elicit worse acid gastroesophageal reflux in term infants. The AAP and the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition have stated that all infants, even those with gastroesophageal reflux, should be placed to sleep in the supine position or on their back, with the exception of the rare infants for whom the risk of death from gastroesophageal reflux is greater than the risk of SIDS. They do not recommend positional therapy with either head elevation or lateral and prone positioning to treat symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux disease in sleeping infants. Okay, on to medications. Pharmacologic therapy, or the use of medications, has a limited role in infants with gastroesophageal reflux. The American Academy of Pediatrics Choosing Wisely in Newborn Medicine initiative targeted decreasing the frequency of anti-reflux medications that are used in infants. Therefore, pharmacologic therapy is reserved for infants who fail conservative management and for those who have symptoms or diagnostic test results that are strongly suspicious for gastroesophageal reflux disease. Additionally, the routine use of anti-reflux medications for treatment of symptomatic gastroesophageal reflux disease or for the treatment of apnea and desaturations in preterm infants should also be avoided. 
And if you recall, there is not supportive evidence that treatment of gastroesophageal reflux with medications that decrease gastric acidity or increase gastrointestinal motility actually decrease the risk of recurrent apnea or bradycardia in preterm infants. Prokinetic agents like metoclopramide, demperidone, and erythromycin have been used in older infants to reduce the symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux, but they have not been shown to reduce the occurrence of lower esophageal relaxations or symptoms in preterm infants. Additionally, they all have the potential for significant adverse effects. The 2018 guidelines suggest not to use any of the mentioned prokinetic agents in the treatment of gastroesophageal reflux disease in infants and children. Another medication used at times is sodium alginate combined with sodium bicarbonate. In the presence of gastric acid, alginate formulations precipitate into a low-density viscous gel and act as a physical barrier protecting the esophagus from acidification. Once they are combined with sodium bicarbonate, a carbon dioxide foam forms and protects the lower esophagus from acidification. Use of sodium alginate with sodium bicarbonate may decrease the signs of gastroesophageal reflux in older infants and in preterm infants with a decrease in the frequency of regurgitation, a decrease in the number of acidic gastroesophageal reflux episodes, and a decrease in the amount of total esophageal acid exposure. Unfortunately, the long-term safety has not been evaluated in preterm infants. Proton pump inhibitors, or PPIs, include medications like omeprazole and lisanoprazole, otherwise known as Prilosec and Prevacid, block the proton pump in the gastric parietal cell, which is the last step in the acid secretory pathway. They ultimately decrease acid secretion and will maintain the stomach pH greater than 4, but they have not been shown to relieve the clinical symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux in clinical trials. Additionally, they are also associated with adverse reactions and events. The guidelines do recommend the use of PPIs as a first-line treatment of reflux-related erosive esophagitis in infants and children with gastroesophageal reflux disease. Histamine, or H2 receptor blockers, or H2RA, like ranitidine and famotidine, or otherwise known as Zantac and Pepsid, decrease hydrochloric acid secretion and increase the intragastric pH. Unfortunately, there have not been studies done in preterm infants, and there are adverse side effects associated with their use, including an increased risk or incidence of NEC, or necrotizing intercolitis. The guidelines suggest to use H2 receptor blockers in the treatment of reflux-related erosive esophagitis in infants and children if PPIs are not available or contraindicated. The guidelines reiterate not to use H2RAs or PPIs for the treatment of crying or distress or visible regurgitation in otherwise healthy infants. They recommend a four to eight week course of treatment with regular evaluation of the efficacy and need of long-term acid suppression therapy in infants and children with gastroesophageal reflux disease. 
For some infants, surgical intervention with fundoplication may be used. The surgery is typically reserved for infants with severe gastroesophageal reflux disease who have failed maximum medical management. So there you have it. Unfortunately, as you just heard, there still is not a clear-cut diagnostic tool or management plan for NICU infants with gastroesophageal reflux and gastroesophageal reflux disease. I know that many infants in the NICU struggle with reflux. There is no doubt about it. But in the absence of a single gold standard diagnostic tool and or management plan, especially in preterm infants, I feel that it makes it so difficult to properly educate you, my listeners, on the topic. Additionally, I must point out that the guidelines I referred to and some of the resources I used are from 2018 and 2019 because that is all that is currently available. Even the up-to-date article that I reviewed did not cite more recent studies. Hopefully, there are current studies occurring right now that will help provide more clear-cut recommendations for diagnostic tools and management plans for gastroesophageal reflux and gastroesophageal reflux disease as it applies to infants in the NICU. I must add that all infants are different, so what may work for one infant may not work for another. Also, each NICU will manage and treat reflux differently. So I encourage parents to continue being an advocate for your child, ask questions, and be involved in their daily plan of care. Although you may want to rush to treat your child's reflux, just know that the medications do not come without the potential for adverse side effects. And as you just heard, there is not a clear-cut treatment plan or optimal medication to use right now. So be patient, support your infant, and continue to work alongside their care team to find the right treatment plan for your individual infant, which may actually be resolved with the tincture of time. Although the recommendations are not crystal clear for how to manage reflux, I hope you found the information I provided throughout the episode helpful. At the very least, I hope you have a much better understanding of the difference between gastroesophageal reflux and gastroesophageal reflux disease and realize now, if you didn't already, that the diagnosis and management of reflux, especially amongst our NICU population, is not very straightforward. For parents, or even professionals that work in the NICU, you can appreciate why reflux is such a controversial topic in the neonatology world. I hope the information I provided today did not muddy the waters for you more, but yet provide you with the most up-to-date, evidence-based information available on gastroesophageal reflux and gastroesophageal reflux disease. For parents and NICU clinicians, please continue to advocate for your children or patients monitor their symptoms, and pass the information along, but do not become frustrated if you feel like the providers are not moving forward or it appears that they are not doing anything. I promise they are very closely monitoring the infant and their symptoms. As a final reminder, it is not recommended to immediately start infants on reflux medications, especially premature infants. And also, despite what you may have heard elsewhere, All infants need to be placed on their backs to sleep. They should not be on their abdomens or have the head of their bed elevated at home. Now remember, go and grab your free resource if you have not already at empowering 
NICUparents.com forward slash G-E-R. As always, please consider sharing this episode with anyone who may gain some value from it. For show notes, the links mentioned in the episode and the list of references I used for this episode, head to empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash episode 51. Thank you for tuning in to the Empowering NICU Parents podcast and have an amazing day. Remember, once empowered with knowledge, you have the ability to change the course. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Empowering NICU Parents podcast. For the show notes and any links mentioned in the episode, head to empoweringnicuparents.com. I would love to hear more from you on the topics you want to hear, so make sure you let me know in the comments section. Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a rating. Five stars would be awesome so we can help other NICU families. Remember, if you have any questions or concerns with your NICU baby, please consult their medical care team. Until next time, friends. Bye.